Again, we're going to continue. We're still in Joseph. And listen, I want to go ahead and tell you, I feel like we're almost like kind of halfway through the story. And you're thinking, this is the, y'all realize this is the ninth week we've been studying Joseph. And you, I hope you're not getting tired of it yet because I, I, it's, it's such a rich story. It would be real easy for us to just fast forward to the end, but I don't want to do that. Because there's so much that we would miss in the midst of it. And this morning, where we're going to camp out is sort of at a transition. You know, in any good, you guys who love to read stories and literature, and even you guys who love to watch movies, um, you know that there are transitions in, in storytelling, and there's transitions in movies and things like that. We're gonna, what we're going to look at this morning is sort of one of those kind of transitions in the story. And, but, but before we get into that, I want us to remember what we talked about last week. We, we've seen Joseph on this journey from being thrown in the pit by his brothers to being before the Pharaoh. And it's God's providence last week that put Joseph before the Pharaoh, and Joseph was able to give wisdom to the Pharaoh to be able to apply the knowledge of what the dreams God had given Pharaoh meant for him and for Egypt and for for the peoples and the countries all surrounding Egypt. And we finally saw Joseph's circumstances change for the good. In fact, they flip completely overnight. You remember we said like that morning he wakes up in the prison and that night he goes to sleep in the palace of the Pharaoh and, and we think, wow, God just changed everything for him all of a sudden. But, but we realize that it, it really wasn't that way. This was a 13-year journey that God had been working with Joseph's life and gradually bringing him to this point. And, and we made the illustration. We talked about roller coasters a little bit last week. And we said that the straightness of God's path isn't in the journey, but it's in the destination. And when Scripture says that he will make our path straight, most of us haven't experienced straight paths in our lives, have we? Most of us feel like our life has been a roller coaster full of twists and turns and corkscrews. But, when, but that statement is still true. Because the straightness of the past doesn't mean that there's not going to be twists and turns along the way. And sometimes we're the ones that cause the twists and turns, aren't we? Sometimes God may lay a straight line out in front of us, but we go off this way or we go back over this way. And God has to, to, to bring us back. Um, but the straightness of his path means that, that there's a destination that we're going to end with. And, and the straight path for Joseph was straight to Pharaoh in that moment. Full of lots of twists and turns, dips, hills, and valleys, all of those things. But um, what we saw last week was Joseph basically says, okay, Pharaoh, here's what your dream means. And then here's what you need to do to make it happen. And so Pharaoh, obviously being impressed and seeing the, the obvious presence of God in everything that Joseph is doing and saying... He says, well, I would be an idiot to pick anybody besides you, Joseph. You're the guy. You're going to be in charge. And he makes him pretty much the most powerful man in Egypt other than himself. And so the rest of chapter 21 
Um, I'm going to give you those. We're not going to read those this morning. What I want to do is summarize those and kind of pick up the story where we left off, give you a summary of the rest of chapter 41, and then we're going to pick up reading the text in, in chapter 42. Okay, so, um, so the rest of chapter 41 goes like this. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge, and then because Joseph is now an Egyptian uh, royal, um, jo- um, Pharaoh begins to implement Egyptian culture into Joseph's life. Um, chapter 41 says that Joseph is given an Egyptian name, his name is changed, and he's given an Egyptian wife, which those things are pretty, pretty customary. When, when foreigners came in, uh, it, was, it was customary for their name to be changed, and he gets a wife that's an Egyptian. And then Joseph begins to administrate. The seven years of plenty begins, and Joseph begins to, to act out the plan that he laid out uh, before Pharaoh. He begins the collection of food and grain during the bountiful years. And, and he institutes, by the way, um, the first, like, basically income tax, a 20%. He says one-fifth of everything you give uh, for the good of the people. And some people... Um, depending on what tax bracket you fall into. Some people today may say, hey, that sounds like a good plan. Let's just do that now. Straight 20%. Uh, But Joseph implements this, and he begins to collect the food and the grain during those bountiful years. And the scripture there says that he gathered so much that it was like the sand of the sea. So much, it was such a bountiful time that Joseph administrated and was collecting so much food and so much grain that it, you couldn't even count it. And it says that he actually, at one point, you, you can imagine Joseph being a pretty meticulous guy and he, he's managing and taking care of things. He's probably good with numbers. Eventually, it says he just stops counting. They have so much and they're collecting so much stuff. Joseph just, they, they don't even have to count it anymore. Um, during that time also, it's important to note that Joseph, it says that Joseph had two sons during these bountiful years with his Egyptian wife. And the thing that's significant about that is that when you read and see the names that he gives to his sons, both of those names in this Egyptian culture that he's living in reflects back to the glory and the goodness of God. And basically, both of these names are, are, are testimonies to all the people around him that the reason he is where he is and the reason that, that God has sustained him through to this point, that he has been sustained, is because of God. So even in the naming of his Egyptian children, he's given back glory to God. And so we know that Joseph's... That, that little detail lets us know that Joseph's relationship with God was not faltering. Even in this foreign country, being given this foreign name and having a foreign wife, and, and he, he's, he's living in this country, but yet, again, it's that idea we've talked about before. He's in the far country. He's not home. He's in the far country, but he's still living out his faith. He's still intimately connected to his relationship with God. And so then after the seven years, lots of years go by in, in these verses at the end of chapter 41. After the seven years of, of plenty, then the, se- the seven years of famine begin. 
And it says that the famine was widespread. It did not just affect Egypt. It affected Egypt. It affected the countries all around Egypt, the peoples around Egypt. It, it Basically, in that context, it, it's, it says the whole world, which just means all of that region around Egypt. And Egypt is so prepared... For this famine, because of what Joseph has done and how he has led during this time, that they are not only taken care of, they have plenty to take care of their people, but they also have such an abundance that these other nations and people in the surrounding countries begin to come to Egypt because everybody knows Egypt has more than enough for everybody. And so people begin to travel into Egypt. And you think about the millions and millions of people who would have been saved during this time. Their lives would have been saved all because of Joseph. And, and, and I want us to stop and think about that as well, that the events of this one young man's life from 17 until 30, and then now it's been another seven years, and, and, he's, and he's administrated all of this that he's done. It's, it's, it's not just about Joseph. And it's not just about the people of Egypt. It, it, God has used him to, to sustain and save millions and millions of people. And, and that just goes to show us that, that God is, is so intentional in the way he moves his people. And he, and he puts us in exactly the places he wants us to be at exactly the right times. So millions of people are saved during this time. And Joseph is in charge because he was in charge of the collection of the food. He is also in charge of the distribution of the food. So anybody who comes from another land, another country, to Egypt to try to get grain, they have to go through Joseph. Joseph is the one they have to come to. And Joseph doesn't just give it away. They sell it. Egypt, like, it's it's great that Egypt has all this, but Egypt is not necessarily the great philanthropist of the world at that time. And so when everybody comes to Egypt for food, they they sell the food to people. And so God, because of Joseph, not only is everybody taken care of, but for Egypt, Egypt just keeps getting richer and richer. And when you read the history, like even later in Scripture, you see the effects of the fact that Egypt just became richer and richer during this time. So Joseph was making Pharaoh very happy. Not only was he taking care of the people, but he was helping make the country richer and richer. So people from all over, the, the, the widespread nature of the famine causes people from all over to begin to come to Egypt to buy grain, to buy food, to help. Okay? So that's the scene. Now I want us to look at chapter 42. And we're only going to look at the first six verses this morning. And, and it's because there are certain breaks in the story that would make it really, really hard. You know, I, I, preaching through this story has kind of helped me identify with people who make television shows. Uh, because you can't just take a, a commercial break at any spot in a TV show. Like, you have to tell the story. You have to find the right places to make commercial breaks. And so it's like sometimes I can't do a commercial break. Uh, in this story, sometimes we have to go through 25 or 30 verses before we can find a good break. 
Sometimes we need to go through a small amount. This morning we're going to do a smaller amount of, of Scripture this morning, but we're going to think about it and, and meditate in it a little bit. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. It says, when Jacob learned... Now, see, there's a flashback. Everything so far has been centered on Joseph and what's going on in Egypt. Now, chapter 42, there's a transition. You know, like if you're watching a movie or a television show and the setting is here and then all of a sudden it, it, it changes setting and it goes to another place focusing on another character. That's what's happening here in chapter 42. There's a shift. So now it's back in Canaan with Jacob and Joseph's brother. So we've not seen or interacted with since they sold him to the slave traders. Verse 1, when Jacob learned, his father that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a dad? <laughs> what are you guys just standing around looking dumb for? Verse 2, listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. Um, you remember I talked about how uh, there was a point several weeks ago where I said that while we are mourning, God is, is working a meanwhile, or he's creating meanwhiles in our lives. This is, this is like a meanwhile moment. We've been focused on Joseph for the past several years. We've watched his journey in Egypt. And now chapter 42 shifts us back to Canaan. And, he, and, and here's a meanwhile. A meanwhile, while all these things have been happening to Joseph, here's what's been going on at home. The famine has reached. It's not just affecting Egypt and, and where Joseph is, but now it's reached all the way to back home to where his family is. They are hurting. They're, they're starving, they're, they're running out of food, they're concerned. And uh, so Jacob hears, word spreads quickly that, hey, there's food in Egypt. If you need food, go to Egypt. And he says to the sons, I, I, I kind of chuckle at verse 1, why do you keep looking at each other? Um, when you look at the language there, he basically says, why are you guys just standing around staring at one another? <laughs> and... Um, and, and so I asked that question of myself. I thought, okay, why would they in that moment when Jacob calls his sons together and says, hey, there's food in Egypt. I want you guys to go there. What would have triggered, why did Jacob have to say, why are you guys just standing around looking at each other like that? Yeah, think about what happened all those years ago. They sold Joseph to slave traders. And they knew where those slave traders were headed. I, I, this is speculation. The text doesn't come right out and say it. But I'm trying to put myself in the human nature of, of the story. I think that as soon as Jacob said something about Egypt, that it triggered something in those brothers. You know, you know what it's like when you were a kid and you did something and you thought you got away with it and nobody knew about it? But then somebody mentions something or does something or says something that makes you go, uh-oh. If they do that 
Or if this happens, then I'm going to get caught. I, I think something triggered them. And when Jacob said, hey, I want you to go to Egypt, they all just kind of looked at each other with that look of like, And then Jacob goes, what are y'all staring at each other for? <laughs> like, he, they know that there's two things that I think triggered in their hearts. Guilt and fear. One, they knew what they were guilty of. That none of them had ever spoken to their father about. And then also there was fear. Because they knew if, if Jacob sent them to Egypt, it's very likely that they might run into Joseph. It, unlikely, they're thinking, because we're going to go to Egypt, we're going to go to the Pharaoh to buy food. Joseph is probably a slave in some, in, in some outskirts or something with some home. They're like, there's no way, well, probably not we're going to see him. But there's this thing in them that was like, oh, wow, what if we ran into Joseph? What are we going to do? And so Jacob sends them, and he sends all of them except Benjamin. And you can probably figure out, why he decides not to send Benjamin. Remember, Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved most, and he only had two sons by Rachel. Joseph was the first, and Joseph is gone. So now Benjamin is all Jacob has left of Rachel. He's also the youngest, and he's already lost one of his youngest sons. So he basically says to the brothers, I'm not sending your little brother with you. Because I would be destroyed. I've already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin too, I, I will literally just want to die. So he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep him here. Um, I can't risk losing him again. So the brothers go. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. The sons of Israel, talking about Jacob, were among those who came to buy grain. There were... Thousands of people, likely, who were coming into Egypt looking to buy grain. And, and these ten brothers of Joseph were among those groups of thousands of people. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Look at verse 6. Huge moment. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Now, we're going to stop right there. And the reason we're going to stop right there is because, like, I want us to just sit in verse 6 for, for just a minute. Because you realize what verse 6 is. Verse 6 is the fulfillment of that dream that was probably at this point about 22 years past. It's been around 22 years now since they threw him in that pit. And now they come in. They have no idea who Joseph is. But they come and they bow down before him. Now, um, Joseph's dream after all those years has finally come true. This is, this is the moment. So I don't want us to just read over verse 6. And be like, oh, yep, they bowed down before him. Like, this, is, this has been 22 years. Joseph has still waited to find out what is it that that dream meant. What did those dreams mean? And, and this is the moment 
where can you imagine being Joseph at this moment and, and your brothers come in and you recognize them. We'll find out later as we continue to read. Joseph recognized them, but they didn't know who he was. Just make yourself Joseph for a minute. And your ten brothers who sold you into slavery wanted to kill you 22 years ago. You are literally on top of the world now. And they come in and they bow down their faces before you. Like, what do you think Joseph is thinking? Like, all of the years of asking God, what does my dream mean? It's fulfilled. It's it, it, like all of it in that moment. And there's a couple of things that I want us to, to think about in verse 6 as, as he comes in, as the brothers come in and bow down before Joseph. Um, one is, um, here's one of the things that I thought about. Like, I, I, I just kind of spent a little while just sitting in verse 6. And what would have been going through everybody's minds? You realize that back that 20, 22 years ago when they threw Joseph in the pit, why did they throw him in the pit finally? Because, because of this dream he had. Like that dream was like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. They, they were done with him. Okay, that's enough. We're sick of you. We're getting rid of you. And it wasn't just because they were annoyed, but he had this dream and said, I'm going to rule over you one day. You will bow down to me according to this dream. And the brother said, no, we won't. And, and they thought that what they did to Joseph was going to stop the dream from coming true, right? God used them... 22 years ago and what they did to make the dream come true. See that? They thought they were going to stop the dream from coming true, but what they didn't know is that God was using them to do the exact opposite. They weren't stopping the dream from coming true by throwing him in the pit. They actually started the ball rolling so that the dream would come true when they threw him in the pit. And had they known that, maybe they wouldn't have thrown him in the pit. Um, here, here's the point I want you to think about here. God can use all things for his plan, even the things against his plan. Think about that for a minute. God can use all things for his plan, even the things against his plan. We look around us right now. And we see so many things that we look at and say, that is, that is not the will of God. Would, none of us would look at the state of our country, the state of the world right now, things that are going on, and say, that's the will of God. Of course, that's not the will of God. That's, that, that doesn't reflect the kingdom. We see all of these things as much as we as believers may be trying to, to move the world closer to what God desires for it, it seems like there's so much that's, that's against what God wants in the world that's working against us. But God can use everything for his plan, even the things against his plan. 
And, and like the brothers thought they were stopping what was going to happen. And in their thinking that they're stopping God, they're actually helping God. You know why? Because he's sovereign over all of it. And so I, I think that there's hope in that for us, that we can look at the world and when the world is fighting against God, God is so sovereign and he's so much in control, I just kind of picture God going, yeah, try that out. Try to go against me and see what happens. Like, it's not going to work. You know what? I'm going to take what you're doing against me and I'm going to use it to do what I want to do. That's who our God is. Um, there's an interesting verse that I found in Psalm 76, verse 10. And it's a, it's a phrase in Psalm 76, and this is what it says. Even human wrath will praise you. What? Even human wrath will praise you. What? Do you mean like the wrath... God can take the, the wrath and the sin of an unsaved pagan world and use it for his glory? Yep. That's what that says. Listen, um, Thomas Ma Manton. Thomas Manton was a 17th century uh, preacher, and, and I found this quote from him, and I, I was just blown away by it. This is what Thomas Manton said. God many times gets up in the world on Satan's shoulders. When matters are raveled and disordered, he can find the right end of the thread and how to disentangle us again. Like that's, that's who God is. And so I, I, I just, in, in that point and in that, basically what I want to say to, to you guys and to everybody who's watching this morning, keep living faithfully. In, in this world, in this climate that we're living in right now. Keep living faithfully. Keep obeying God's word. Stay close to him. When the enemy comes against you, fight it. When evil comes against us in the world, fight it. But even when it looks like the evil is winning, it's not. I hear so many Christians, even now during this time who feel like, who, it sounds like their hearts are in such despair and they, and they see what's going on in the world and they think, man, well, what if, what if this happens? Or what if, you know, there, there's all these things and, and, and we, we see, we would have to be blind not to say that we are not quickly, if we are not already in the last days, we are quickly approaching it. But I hear Christians seeing all of these things that are happening in the world that seem to be pointing, pointing toward these end-time events and, and, and almost panicking, going, what are we going to do? You know what? We're not going to do anything. If we think that we can stop it, then we're fooling ourselves. Like, what, what, if, what if all the coins go away and we go to a cashless society? then that's part of the plan that's getting us to the end. Well, what if, what if we have like a one-world currency? What happens then? What are we going to do? we got to stop that. No, we don't. Because that's part of the plan. If God says these are the things that are going to happen before I come, our, 
legislation isn't going to stop the plan of God. Our, our voting and who we put in the White House and who we don't isn't going to stop the plan of God. It's going to continue to move and he's going to continue to accomplish what he wants. I think maybe what we should spend more of our time doing instead of worrying about all of these world issues. And don't get me wrong here. I'm just trying to put things in perspective. I hope you all understand what I'm saying here because I'm kind of shooting from the hip right now. Instead of worrying about legislation and politicians and, and government and and all of these things, you know, that train is going to be moving toward the end. And God's moving that train and we're not going to stop it. Maybe instead of trying to change the world and change the government and change the circumstances, maybe we need to get off of our feet and start telling people about Jesus. <laughs> maybe we need to spend our energy, all the energy we're talking about politics telling people about Jesus because the, the train that God is moving toward the end times isn't going to slow down because we're talking about it and debating about it on Facebook. But what, what is going to happen is when that train comes and, and, and that day happens, there's going to be all kinds of people left here that's never heard about Jesus because we didn't tell them because we were too busy arguing on Facebook about politics. God can use all of it. And he's going to use all of it. And what he wants to happen is going to happen. So keep being faithful. Keep telling people about Jesus. Keep living in the world, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what's going to happen because God's got it. Here's the second thing. You remember the, the, the dream that Joseph had? It, the first dream he had, it was um, they were, they were, he was out in the field with his brothers Right, And it says that his brother's sheaves of, of grain bowed down to Joseph's sheaves. Now, the ten brothers are coming into Joseph's presence. And they're bowing down before him. So that dream wasn't just about him, the brothers bowing down to Joseph. What are they coming to Joseph to get? Grain. Like those sheaves, the fact that, that the symbol that Joseph saw in that dream was sheaves of grain was significant because that's the very reason that the ten brothers are coming down and bowing before Joseph is because they need grain. And so their, their ten sheaves bowing down to his sheave of grain. They're like, like they're so, this is such a specific fulfillment of that dream that Joseph had. And you think, well, what was the main point of Joseph's dream that he had? The brothers, when they heard Joseph's dream, they thought that his dream fulfilled would be all about authority, right? They thought that the theme of that dream was authority, that Joseph is going to have authority over us. It says that we're going to bow down to him, and they bucked at that and said, no, we're not. They all, but they didn't realize if they had, like what they couldn't see was that that dream was also about provision. Yeah, they're coming and they're bowing down before Joseph but why? Because Joseph is going to give them something that they need. 
and those and the symbolism of those sheaves of grain, those sheaves of wheat, like were symbolic of the provision that Joseph was going to give to them. So even though it was about Joseph's authority over them, it, the, if if the brothers could have could have opened their eyes with and their hearts had not been so hardened to Joseph, maybe they could have seen not just that this this dream means that we're going to bow down to Joseph one day, but there's going to be one day that Joseph is going to provide something that we desperately need for us, and Joseph's going to take care of us. But they didn't see that twenty years ago. They just saw the fact that he was going to bow down, or that they were going to bow down to Joseph. So here's another point I want you to try to grasp with me this morning. Whenever you see one of God's purposes, know that there's another one you can't see. Whenever you see one of God's purposes, know that there's another one of God's purposes that you probably can't see. The brothers saw the dream, said, oh, it's about bowing down. That dream was about authority. But it was also about provision. But they didn't see that. Um, You've you've heard people say before um, your whole life, when we talk about trusting God, you've heard people say, when you can't, you know, when you can't trace God's hand, you trust God's heart. When you can't um, understand his purpose when we have those moments where we're crying out to God and saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I can't see what the purpose is of this, but I'm trying to trust you. What about when we can see his purpose? What about when things are working and we can see that like right in front of us, God is orchestrating and fulfilling a purpose in us and somebody else and we see it. I think maybe sometimes we tend to just stop in this purpose. Like, God, I see you working this purpose, and this is the one purpose that you're working on because this is all I can see. Like, what if we began to see the purposes of God beyond what we could see? What if instead of uh, not just saying, God, I'm trusting your purposes that I can't see when I don't see anything. What if, what if we went a step further and said, God, I can see you working this purpose, but I'm trusting that there's another purpose that you're working that I can't even see. Like the brothers, there was a purpose in that dream that they saw, but then there was a whole other purpose that was for their good that they didn't see. I think about Jesus in his last hours with the disciples and they were in the upper room and Jesus begins to um, wash the feet of the disciples and the disciples had spent the last three years like living with Jesus day and night they've, they've gone everywhere with him they've watched him Minister. They've listened to him teach. They've seen him rebuke the religious leaders. Uh, they've seen him turn the tables over in the temple. They've, they've watched him heal people miraculously. They've listened to him teach and preach about the kingdom of God that he had come to bring. So much 
of the purpose that God had for Jesus. The disciples saw so much of what nobody else could see. And so their eyes were so opened already to the purpose of, of Jesus' ministry. But then when, when this moment comes, and it's in John chapter 13, when Jesus begins to wash their feet, you remember Peter speaks up and Peter says, No, no, Jesus, you can't do that. Almost as if to say that's not part of the purpose. It's not, it's not purposed for you to wash my feet. Like it should be the other way around. And, and so he protests because Peter's, he's seen all of these other purposes of Jesus' life and ministry. But here's a purpose that he can't see. And he protests. And Jesus says something to him in John 13, 7. It says, Jesus answered him. What I'm doing, you don't realize now. But afterward, you will understand. I don't know if you're... I hope this is making sense. I hope you're tracking with me. But even in the midst of the purposes that we see God working, there's other purposes that he's... He's fulfilling that we can't see. And so here's the question I want us to end end with today. One is, what do you see God doing? Like when we think about the plan and the purpose for God, of God in the world, the plan and purpose of God in your life, in your family... In, in whatever circumstances you're living in right now, I want you to ask yourself the question, what do I see God doing? What are the things that are right in front of my face that I can see? And those may look good, and those may not look so good. Because Joseph's life, the purpose that it seemed that God had for him at any given point, was good and bad and good and bad circumstances. What, what do you see? What do I see God doing? And then I want you to stop for a minute and imagine what God might be doing that you can't see. What... What could he be working that you would never even think of? You see the purpose of God in the world, and, and, and sometimes it looks like the purpose of God in the world is being defeated by evil. But imagine what God is, is doing right now that you just can't see. And that's part of the challenge of our faith and our challenge of our relationship with God because we're kind of, we can be bound, if we allow ourselves to be, we can be bound only by what we see. But what does Scripture say that, that we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. Sometimes we think the only purpose, the only plan that God is working out is the one that we can see. 
But just stop for a minute and let yourself wonder, man, what, what might God be doing that I can't see? What might he be doing that's even better than what I see him doing? That's what the brothers are, are, about, are about to experience. And the, the reason we're stopping here in the text is because this is, the, this is a, a point where now the story is going to shift from focusing on Joseph to now it's going to go back to the brothers and to Jacob. We've seen now in verse 6 the fulfillment of these dreams for, for Joseph. But now there's something more. There's a purpose for the brothers too. It's not, the story's not just about Joseph and the dreams weren't just about Joseph. It, they were about the brothers too because they were in the dreams too. So now the story's about to shift. And it's going to go back to them. What is it? What is the purpose that God is about to work out in their life? What are the things he's going to teach them? How is he going to move them because of what he's done in Joseph? You know how he's, it seems that he's moving you now. What, what might he be doing in your life that you can't even see? And that may blow your mind for a minute to think about and go, wow, Eric, I don't, I don't know how to even understand that. You don't really have to understand it. I don't think. I think faith just says we have to believe that it's true. That there's the seen and there's the unseen and they both are just as real as one another. 